<coughs> among the fundamentals in Torah thinking that we try to study here in this uh, forum <coughs> we also have to discuss some of the basic insights into character, personality, personality building and control and there is a subject in this domain that uh, <coughs> we need to look at and that is the question of <coughs> a specific problem in coping with ordeals, difficulties <coughs> crises maybe it's a very big subject and it's linked to our discussion on free will and our discussion on ordeals but let's try to pick out a particular unique aspect of the subject, see if we can <coughs> develop it more fully. And that's the question of the process of personal failure. In other words, when you are going through an experience where you feel that you failed, or you're in the process of failing, or you feel you're not perhaps coping, some unique aspects to that to that. Experience. In other words, when you're faced with an ordeal and you cope, you manage, you grapple with it, we've discussed that. We've discussed previously the concept of free will and its application in, in situations of stress or ordeals. <laughs> no? What happens when things are not going smoothly? There are some critical points in these experiences that need to be studied. Rebchaim Shmulevitz, one of the great thinkers in this, this, in addition to all the other areas of Torah, puts forth the following general presentation. Let's see if we can try and work through it and develop it. If you follow the process of, let's, let's be brutal, let's look at the process of people's failures. Let's look at the descent into <coughs> complete failure. How does it go? <coughs> so normally you find that the normal process is that the descent into collapse, that when you lose it, and when you break down, and we're talking here specifically morally, that means we're talking in the moral area, talking about one's own personal development, accepting and living up to the challenges, we discussed previously, I'm sure you'll remember, the teaching, Jewish teaching, that free will applies really only in the moral area. It applies, it applies really only in the, in the battle between right and wrong. We're not talking, free choice is not meaningful in terms of technical choice. That's not, that's not human free will. Machines can do that. <coughs> Animals can do that. The free will we talk about is the free will to grapple correctly with temptations where you know there's a correct path and yet there's a more sensuous or lazy or earthy, material path, and it's in the battle between the higher self and the lower self that real free will is meaningful. The normal pathway of failure in that area is a gradual pathway. Now, let's try and understand this. Let's first map out the territory and then go through it slowly. The territory that we want to explore this evening is <coughs> that when things go wrong and people crash and people eventually end up doing things that are, that are very low, or people end up losing their direction in life entirely and, and destroying their lives. Usually the process is gradual. But there are some unique circumstances in which the process can be rapid. That a person can go instantaneously from close to perfection to complete and utter collapse and, and, and destruction. And that's a specific danger that needs to be highlighted <coughs> And understood. So let's see if we can analyze that <coughs> process. First of all, why is the process of collapse usually slow? Why is it that when you, you lose your status, you lose your, your spiritual level, why does it usually happen slowly? The usual reason is, <coughs> the usual process, <coughs> the reasoning behind it is that 
when you're holding at a level of greatness, you've accepted certain certain challenges, and you've, you've, you've been challenged, and you've met those challenges, and you live on a level of, of, of sensitivity, the reason you wouldn't do things that are low are be- is because they're beneath you. You wouldn't sink to a level of crude and coarse behavior because it would offend you. you, you Every aspect of your inner being would be offended by thinking even or stooping to those things. And therefore, your own lower self does not attack you. Uh, stay with me carefully. Your own, what we call Yetzirah, we mean your own lower energy, <coughs> your own lower side, does not attack you with temptations to do things that are so crude that you, would, you don't need any battle to overcome those things. You've long, you've long since overcome those things. Your battle's not there. Your battle's pitched at the level of your sensitivity. And therefore, if, if it appealed to you to do something that was well below your, below your level, let's say beneath your dignity, you never would collapse in that area. Need some illustration. You are all very morally refined individuals. No question you wouldn't be here otherwise. No doubt being here has even improved that level. Now, with all this incredible sensitivity, you walk out of here this evening, (coughs) and you're walking pensively down the road, thinking your spiritual thoughts, and you happen to walk past a jewelry store. And there behind the glass is thousands of pounds worth of goods. And lying on the pavement is a brick. It'll be the work of a movement to heave the brick through the window and would you do such a thing? You wouldn't even consider such a thing. You would be, you'd be, you'd be sickened by the thought of such a thing. You'd never, you, why? You don't steal. You would never stoop to that. Theft. Stealing is well below your level, right? well below the level of your own personal battle. You wouldn't do that. But you would, perhaps, steal in circumstances that are more refined. Why? Because in every sin, in every area of Avera, there is a possible temptation and collapse that is relevant to a particular individual. You no doubt at a level where throwing a brick through a, a store window and grabbing the goods and running off down the road is absolutely unthinkable. But how about if you work for an employer and you occasionally make a private phone call? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, (laughs) but if you work for someone and you call, you make a private call, that's not simple. It's not simple at all. First of all, there's the cost of the call. First of all, there's the cost of the call. And secondly, there's time that you spend on your private call while you're being paid to work for this employer. There's two actionable elements of stealing according to Jewish law. Now, it could be, in most employment situations, there's no end to this. You know, if you wake someone who's sleeping, (coughs) you'd never steal. (coughs) But if you wake someone who's sleeping, according to Allah and Jewish law, it's considered stealing. And it's a very difficult form of stealing because you can't pay it back. So if you're inconsiderate when someone's sleeping, you make a bit of a noise and you wake him up, it's a very serious, tangible transgression in the area of stealing. And some people who refined enough that they would never consider throwing a brick through a store window <coughs> wouldn't even be sensitive enough to even realize that they've done that. That takes a higher level of sensitivity. Could be that when you make a private phone call and you work for an employer, probably according to, 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 to Jewish law, to Allah, in most circumstances, probably that's not considered stealing because (coughs) it's tacitly understood by the employer (coughs) that you're allowed to call home occasionally. That means that, I've no doubt that in a town like this, most employers, when they employ someone to work for them, they understand that the employee is going to occasionally call home, and he doesn't, it's not, it's the kind of thing that you would do in front of your employer because it's a, are you with me, it's tacitly accepted, there's no problem, and therefore that would not be considered stealing. How about long distance? (laughs) <laughs> you see, there's a borderline There's a borderline that is refined And you're either on the level and you pick it up or you don't But it is, there's a level for you Whether it's waking someone who's sleeping Or whether it's intruding on someone's thoughts when you shouldn't Or it's making a phone call that's really Or it's taking a few minutes off when you're working When really, you really 
it's not lunchtime and it's not this and it's not that. You really should be working. <laughs> and therefore, the way the process goes of collapse is that you don't have a refined individual who suddenly, you know, heaves a brick through a store window and, and, and behaves like a common criminal. It doesn't happen that way. It does not happen that way. What happens is the individual is very sensitive and they're proud of their level and then they fall by uh, almost intangible error. And once they're on that level, the next almost intangible error is more acceptable and then they do that. And eventually, after a long set of steps, each one almost imperceptibly different than the one before, they could end up doing almost anything. But it goes slowly. It goes slowly. You get chipped away slowly, your level... That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. There are exceptions. There are certain. There are a number of exceptions, each of which needs careful, separate discussion. But that's the general pattern. Now, if we look at life, we will see that sometimes this rule is broken. Sometimes this rule is broken. Let's look in Torah, Torah sources and see examples of the that contravene this rule. <coughs> see if we can understand them, because if we do, we can extract from them a, an amazing principle. In, in life, in self-control, and in, in, in maintaining stability in life. Let's take a couple of examples. Again, we'll have to work through them carefully, <coughs> but let's, let's understand. One classic example is the sin of the golden calf. Jewish people were in the desert. They reached a level of, of incredible spiritual greatness. They merited receiving the Torah, the lowliest of that generation, it says, saw more than the highest prophet ever saw subsequently. Tremendous level. And then, virtually, loosely speaking, moments after they received the Torah, they worshipped a lump of gold. Idolatry. How did people at that level, how did people at that level sink to that level in one step? That's the problem. We're talking about a generation that was higher than any other generation in the history of the world. Some few million Jews who merited to elevate themselves to the status of seeing Hashem directly, receiving the Torah personally, and then within moments of that, so to speak, they worship idolatry. Idolatry is the lowest sin in the Torah. It's the most serious by far. There's no question about it. It's the, it's the source of all negative commandments. It's the direct going against the purpose of what a Jew is supposed, supposed to be here for in the world, which is relationship with Hashem. It's the counterpoint to that. It's the source... It's one of the three things that, 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 that you have to die rather than do. <laughs> and in fact, it's the source of the other two. <coughs> they sank from, from the level. How does that happen? How does that go in one step? person who commits idolatry, surely somebody who's gone through many, many, many difficult experiences and finally end up... How did they go in one step? First of all, there's a, there's a very difficult aspect to this discussion which we don't really have time to go into fully now, but we have to say it in order to... And that is a full and separate discussion. But just to mention it briefly, you have to realize that the form of idolatry they committed was not the crass and crude picture that we have. If you think that those incredibly great people saw Hashem at one moment, they raised themselves to the level of being the generation that could receive the Torah, and then the next moment they bowed down to a lump, a shape of gold, and they said that this is the God that created the world, those are not people with a religious problem. Those are people with a psychiatric problem. <laughs> That's inconceivable. Right? <coughs> That's inconceivable logic. You have to understand that, that that kind of idolatry, you're talking about a primitive you know, islander somewhere in the South Seas who you know, carves a shape out of a piece of stone and then tells himself that it created him. Right? That form of idolatry. If that's what you picture they were doing, then there's no way, there's no, no rationale at all that can begin to understand this. And therefore, we have to understand that the idolatry that they committed was idolatry. It was sinking to the level of relating to an image to a physical form, to an image, at their incredible level of spirituality. You have to know that the, the Midrashim say, again, this is an aside in our discussion, but just to give a bit of a taste for this, <coughs> the Midrashim say that <coughs> what happened was that they were left alone in the desert. You remember what happened is that Moshe Rabbeinu went up the mountain to receive the Torah, and he was gone 40 days and 40 nights, and he failed to come back when he was due to come back. You know, it says, the, the words in the Torah are, Boshesh Moshe. Boshesh means he hesitated in coming back. There was a delay. But the Medrash says, Vashesh. It means he was supposed to come back at the sixth hour of the day, on that 40th day, and he did not come back. The reason is, of course, that he said 40 days, 
and he meant it in the sense of 40 full days, which meant he'd only be back the next day, which was the 40th full day. But they calculated the time from hour to hour. In other words, after 40 exact 24-hour periods had gone past, there was a discrepancy of a day. And when the 40th day came according to their calculation and he did not come back, they thought that he died. After all, this man went for 40 days into the higher world, where, where, the, where the exactitude of judgment, <laughs> the electricity, the voltage is indescribable. They thought that he'd not survived. In fact, the Medrash says, the, the, the soldiers say, that at that moment they were shown an image of his Leviah, his being buried. They, they, they saw a picture of his, having, his life having ended and being carried to be, uh, to be buried. And at that moment they panicked. They panicked, they thought they were alone in the desert, that there was no, that there was no focus, that the only thing that those people lived for, obviously, it should be obvious to anybody with any sensitivity, the only thing they lived for was their connection with Hashem. The verse says that they followed Hashem out into the desert like, like people... <coughs> they, they, they went out into a place with absolutely no sustenance, just a, an absolute barren desert, only for their relationship with Hashem. That's all that meant anything to them. And the focus... That, the way that they made that connection was through, through Moses, through Moshe Rabbeinu. their connection with what they lived for was only through a specific focus. He was, all their relationship was channeled through him and when he failed to come back and they thought that he had died, they thought that their lives had come to an end, that the future of the world had come to an end, that the Torah would now not be given, that everything they lived for, that there was a desperate moment of, of and therefore they, they decided they decided to, to do something about it. What did they decide to do? They decided to build an image of gold that would be a focus again for their relationship with Hashem. This also needs explanation. Let's try and put this in a nutshell. You know, there's an idea that's voiced in the, the deeper sources, the Kabbalistic sources, and again, it's very, it has certain intimate elements that are impossible to go into here. But the Kabbalistic sources say that wherever a relationship is powerful, wherever a relationship is powerful, it's always channeled through a point of intensity. Perhaps the best example for this is you'll notice that the Jewish people's relationship with Hashem is always channeled through a particular focus. We call it the Mishkan or the Besamikdash, the Temple. The way the Medrash puts it is an incredible thing that it describes our relationship with Hashem. You have to hear these words sensitively, but it says like this. The Jewish people are always likened in the, in the Torah literature to a young bride and Hashem is always likened to, to the groom that it's a marriage between him and us. And in this marriage between the Jewish people and, and, and Hashem, the, this, the, the way it's phrased in the, in the, in the Medrash is like this. L- listen carefully. When our love was strong, we lay together on the blade of a knife. And when our love grew weaker, a bed of 60 cubits was too small. And now that our love has grown even weaker, Hashemayim kisi, the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool. What the Medrash means is that when our love was strong, meaning when we walked out into a desert for love of Hashem and nothing else, so then we lay together on the blade of a knife means that we met in the Mishkan. The Mishkan was that sanctuary in the desert that was tiny. It was a tiny tent of skins, but that was enough. When our love grew weak, then we needed a much bigger space in which to meet. The first temple that was built after going into the land of Israel, where there's already a natural existence, it's not such a close and intense relationship with Hashem, then we need a much bigger place of meeting. And the second temple was twice the size of the first. And it didn't even have the Shekinah within it, and now, of course, he's in wherever he is, and we're down here, and we haven't seen each other for a long time. The, the, the analogy, if you like, this closeness between husband and wife, if you like, <coughs> the analogy is, that when two people get married, you cannot squeeze them too closely together. All they have is a small basement apartment someplace, but that's enough. And the more they're together, the better, and it's fine. But after a little while, you know, and their lives progress, he moves into the east wing, she moves into the west wing, you know, <laughs> and even then their paths cross too often. <laughs> and finally, you know, dissolves, disintegrates.
That's what the Medrash is saying. When our love was strong and things were young and intense, we met in a very small place of meeting. And later, as things... The Jewish people have arrived at the level that we've arrived now. But that's what it means. However, when the love was intense, we met in a very small place. In fact, in the Mishkan itself, the voice of Hashem spoke from in the inner sanctum, within the Kodesh Kodoshim, and there it spoke only from between the two golden crewmen. The two golden images that were commanded to be built there. The Jewish people knew this. They knew that the focus always goes through a certain point of intensity. Why this is and how it works in the Kabbalah is not the time to go into, but that's what they knew. The focus until then had been Moshe. When he disappeared and they thought that he died, they took emergency action to rebuild the focus. And they did their best. After all, they built an image of gold. Why did they do that? You know how close they were to, to getting exactly correct? What happened shortly after that is they were given a commandment to build an image of gold. The two golden crewmen. Why? You know, the, 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 the mystical sources say that there are four corners to the chariot. What the chariot is, also not time to go into now. But there are four corners to the chariot. The four corners are the face of a human, an eagle, a lion, and a calf. And they chose. They chose one. They chose for certain reasons. They chose that one. In fact, they were very close. It was another corner of the chariot, the human form, that they were commanded to build. That wasn't idolatry. It was a divine command to put those two crewmen inside the Mishka. Huh? So all they were trying to do was preempt that. That's all. The, the, the idolatry, you have to understand this. This was not idolatry of people bowing down to a lump of gold and saying that it made the world. These were people trying to make an image that would provide the focus for their relationship with Hashem. You have to understand that the sins of people in Tanakh were always done at their level of incredible greatness. They weren't done at the level of this generation. At their level, that's what they thought was the emergency way to fix the situation. But at their level, it was idolatry. At their level, it was the formation of an image that they had not been commanded to make. And at their level, it was absolute idolatry. Not at our level, you have to understand that. And that's again a discussion for another time we entered that. We began to discuss these things once before. But the point to remember is like this. You don't judge them at your level, you judge them at their level. But at their level, it was idolatry. At their level, despite all this rationalization and all this discussion of how incredibly great it was, and how close to the truth it was, but for people at that level, when they fell that much, that was the end. That was the end. And therefore, our problem, let's come back to our problem, how did, how did they fall from the level of the most indescribably sublime greatness of relationship with Hashem? How did they fall instantaneously? Within moments, they panicked, yes. And then they fell to a level of... Huh? Are we together? We understand the problem? Why weren't they... Why didn't they ebb away slowly? Why, how is it that in one moment, they ended up, one moment they were speaking to Hashem, there's no sublime generation of all, and the next moment they were, they were, they were caught worshipping idols. And here comes the explanation, and this is the principle that has to take us through this whole discussion. When you panic, when you think you fail, when you're emotionally unstable, when you have a crisis of emotions or identity, you can do anything. You can fall to anything instantaneously. <coughs> And that's the moment to watch carefully. When you're strong, and you're morally strong, and you're psychologically strong, and you're emotionally strong, and you're tempted, you may fall a little bit. When you're weak, and when you're down, and when you're depressed, and when you've got a sense of failure, you could do anything. When their balance was shifted, when their stability was threatened, when they felt they were a people alone in the desert, they'd lost everything they lived for, in that moment of, of panic-stricken Search for... Let's continue. There's more to this. It's not only, you have to understand, it's not only that when you have an emo- there's a crisis of identity, but there's more, there's more to the subject. Let's, uh, let's build it slowly. Let's take one or two more examples to understand. Example number two. During that same generation, there was a man, it was described here in Chumash, that as they were going through this desert experience, there was a man who... <coughs> The Gemara says, Chumash <coughs> says, the Gemara explains, it says, he went out, he went out, it says, Vayetze Ish, a man went out, a man, the son of a Jewish woman, went out and he began cursing. But cursing means, in English you call it blasphemy. In Torah, we, we, we cannot even bring ourselves to say cursing whom. So the, the, way, the way it's expressed in the sources is blessing Hashem. 
but it means the opposite, of course. It's a euphemism from the opposite. It doesn't mean blessing. It means cursing. That's what he did. Now the question is, how did he do that? <coughs> We're talking about a man great enough to receive the Torah. <coughs> One of this generation that we've just been discussing. <coughs> how did he reach a level? <coughs> how did he merit to see that incredible revelation that he saw, and then go out and deny in the most blasphemous, not just atheistic, but the most violently negative terms? How did he do that? And it happened instantly, again. It was not somebody who made a small mistake in another one and years later was found to be a problematic individual. This was a person who crashed instantaneously from the highest level to the lowest level. How did that happen? <coughs> well, the story is like this. <coughs> when you look into the story, the, the Chazal say, what does it mean he went out? He went out and cursed. So there's two explanations. One is he went out of his world. He lost the world. He lost this world and the next world. He lost the world to come. But at another level it says, he went out of the basin of Moshe. He went out of the court of Moshe Rabbeinu. It was a court case. It was a Din Torah. He was heard. He lost his case. He went out, and having lost his case, he crashed instantly and lost everything. He lost this world and the next for eternity. What was the court case? It says he was the son of a Jewish woman. <coughs> right? What do you mean the son of a Jewish woman? Weren't they all? All the Jews of that generation, born of Jewish women, those, yes? What? He was unusual in that his father was an Egyptian. The reason that we emphasize the fact that his mother was Jewish is to point out in a very clear way that his father was not. Why? Why? Because there the Gemara says that and in all 210 years of slavery in Egypt, there was not one single incident of immorality. You have to understand these people. That's an, as, an, as an aside. To understand who we are and who they were. These were a slave people who had not yet been given the Torah. All they had was a tradition that they would be given the Torah one day and they'd be saved. All they knew is that they were a people descended from Abraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov. They would become the Jewish people. They had no explicit commandments yet. They never had a prophetic revelation yet. They were slaves in a country that is described as the most immoral, in the most violent and, and extreme terms. It was a country, I can't even repeat the words, the Chazal called Egypt, Erva Saaretz. That means... <coughs> I'll put it euphemistically for you in English, it means the nakedness of the land. But it means much more than that. Much more, much more blatant expression of what Egypt is in terms of which parts of the body it represents in the world. That's who Egypt was. They were, the Gemara the, describes their interaction with... It's indescribable the level that they had sunk to in terms of immorality. It was instant. You know, just to give you one example, it says that when the firstborn died, how immoral were the Egyptians... <coughs> Gemara describes them, the Psukim, the, the verses describe them in the same terms as horses and donkeys. It says that when all the firstborn died, in every home, in every home someone died, and in every home it wasn't the firstborn. It was the plague of the firstborn, the firstborn died, and you know why? Because they were so immoral that everybody that everybody thought was a firstborn, in fact, wasn't a firstborn, because this woman had a relationship with somebody else, and he had right? So that there was a whole plague of firstborn dying that only then revealed who really were the firstborn. And in that environment, there was a nation who were enslaved by these people, in that context, in that social context, in that culture, and they were at the power and mercy of these people, and there wasn't one incident of immorality. Do you know what that means? Do you know what I understand what kind of a people we come from, who we once were? 210 years of slavery. And imagine what a Jewish woman could have gained for herself and her family if she had succumbed to some temptation in some Egyptian home. And she never did. Nobody ever, not one incident of immorality in all those centuries. How many seconds go by now in this generation? How many seconds without an incident of voluntary, let alone coerced immorality? Let's know where we're holding. However, however, how do we know this? Because the Psukim tell us that in this incredible, incredibly elevated level, there was one woman who had a relationship with an Egyptian man. And the reason that it's mentioned is only to show you that there was only one. And even with her, it was an accident. How was it an accident? Because she was a little bit immodest, only at an incredibly refined level. And the Gemara there describes what her immodesty was. It was a level that for anybody in this generation would be an incredible modesty. <laughs> but it was enough. It was enough for an Egyptian to notice her in a way that no Egyptian ever noticed any other Jewish woman. And because of that, one night she impersonated her husband. She didn't know 
eventually he had a relationship with her, and a child was born who was a Jewish man, because he was born from a Jewish mother, but his father was an Egyptian. And it was the only incident. What happened with this man? <coughs> well, what happened was this. When the Jews were in the desert, he, he went to pitch his tent, like every, every Jew did. And he went to pitch his tent in the Machaneh Dan. He went to the camp of Dan. They, all the twelve tribes were, were drawn in formation. They marched through the desert in formation, right? In four groups of three. And in each camp there were three. And within each one, each family had a place. The reasons for that we're not going to go into now. He came to pitch his tent in the camp of Dan. And as he began to pitch his tent, the men around him said to him, Why are you pitching your tent here? You don't belong to this tribe. And in fact, he began to realize, you know, the tribe goes by your father. Your Jewish identity goes by your mother. Whether you're Jewish or not is, is, is conveyed right by the essence of what a, Jew, what a Jewish woman is. But which tribe you belong to, whether you're from Yehuda or Levi or Shimon, that goes by your father. <coughs> His father didn't belong to any tribe. So there was a court, there was a case. He was, the, the case was heard by Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe ruled that he didn't belong there. Correct? Of course, he, didn't, he, he wasn't from that tribe. He walked out of that court case and lost this world and the world to come by descending into an angry revolution against the one whom he personally had seen right at the Sinai experience. Why? Because in one instant he became a man without an identity. He became a man going through an emotional crisis, a person going through what we call today an identity crisis, a real identity crisis. Who am I? And in a moment like that, you could lose everything. It doesn't go slowly. You have to understand carefully. This was one of the people, and you have to emphasize this. You know, he was one of the generation that left Egypt. You know who left Egypt? Of those people, listen, listen carefully, without laboring the point. Of those thousands and thousands, millions of Jews, who lived enslaved in a nation and a culture of immorality, and none of those people ever committed any act of immorality. They were on a supernal level of spiritual greatness and self-motivated. They didn't have a Torah yet. How many of them were good enough to leave Egypt? So Rashi says, that when they left Egypt, only one in five Jews left. The others died in the plague of darkness. Why? Because they weren't on the level. They weren't on the level. They didn't have what it took. And only one in five Jews managed to, re- to, to hold by the level that was required to leave Egypt and become the people who received the Torah. Four-fifths died. In fact, the sources say they died during the plague of darkness. So the Egyptians shouldn't know. They were able to bury them secretly. That's only one opinion, incidentally. There's another opinion of the sages that one in 50 survived. And there's another opinion that one in 500, it says, Chamushim al They went up, Chamushim means armed. But anyone who knows Hebrew knows that Chamushim means armed, but it literally means fifths. A fifth. But it could mean a fiftieth or a five hundred. <coughs> but even at the most lenient opinion, let's forget the five hundred and the fifth. One in five Jews survived, and he was one. So he was of the top echelon, the top level of the Jewish people. He merited it. And he but even a person at that level, when he went through a crisis of exactly who am I, he lost everything instantly. <coughs> Let's go through the third example. And this teaches another depth in the principle. Again here it's very difficult to talk in detail, but I'll, I'll say what can be said. <laughs> One more incident from Jewish history, and then we'll see if we can pull together this most important and, and dangerous area. <coughs> there were two girls, two sisters. Their names were Ruth and Orpha. Ruth, Ruth, and a sister Orpha. What happened to them? They married two Jewish men. They were, they were potential converts to Judaism. They were converts to Judaism. They were women of supernal greatness. They came from the lowliest of nations in the, at that time, Moab. The Moabites in that generation were the immorality of the earth. Moab means from my father. Moab means from my father. The nation was conceived by the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter. Huh? And this girl, after having an immoral relationship with her father, she named the child for the immorality. She named him Moab from my father. But the Gemara says that it was actually... It was, it was a sin for the right reason, because she thought the whole world had come to an end. But the point is that that nation arose from that immoral, that incestuous relationship. They became the nation of Moab. They were absolutely steeped in immorality. And these two girls were princesses in that nation. Ruth and Orpah, two sisters, they were princesses in that nation. When two Jewish men arrived, <laughs> Machlon and Chilion, they identified, they, ident- they saw the spirituality, they, they, their hearts led them to cleave to them, and they bonded to them. 
that's what happened. Eventually the men died, as I'm sure you all know the story, and they were on their way back to, to Israel. In an act of tremendous heroism, that means they were left destitute, their husbands had died, their father-in-law had died, and Naomi, the mother-in-law, was leading them back. They were coming back along the road to Bethlehem from the Moabite side. And as they walked along the road, they came to a moment of crisis. <coughs> Naomi turned to her daughters-in-law and she said to them, go back to your people. Go back to the people. In fact, it's from this discussion that we learn how one is obliged to turn converts away. They wanted to become part of the Jewish people. And from here we learn that in order to, to, to ensure <coughs> that a convert wants sincerely to become part of the Jewish people and not for any ulterior motive, we have a law that we try very hard to turn them away. Only a convert who fights through that discouragement and comes anyway is allowed to convert. This is the source of those laws. <laughs> but she turned to her daughters-in-law and she said, you go back. Go back. What do you need it for? You need to be part of the Jewish people. We, we, we are persecuted people. We people who throughout history will be persecuted. We have laws that are very, very constricting. They, they're very demanding. They, what do you need it for? Go back to your people, your princesses. You could marry anybody. You can have the riches and the... And the, and the can have, Go back and be moral, be moral people in your, in your, in, among your people. And there was a moment of crisis. So what happened? It says, after they had this discussion, they, they stayed with her, they moved with her, and finally, at the final, final moment, at the border, critical border of Israel, it says that the two girls behaved in the following fashion. It says, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and turned back, and she went back to her people, and Ruth cleaved or clung to her mother-in-law, and she moved with her across the border, and she moved into the Jewish people, and she became the great-grandmother of King David. Grandmother of King David, which means that from her came the Mashiach, the Messiah. You have to understand this. This is a girl who came from Moab. She came from the most immoral nation on earth at the time, <coughs> born of an incestuous relationship, <coughs> converted to Judaism, and merited to become the mother. In fact, the Gemara says that when King Solomon reigned, she was alive, and she sat next to his throne. They said three, four generations later when King Solomon ruled through that incredible period of history when the Jewish people were absolutely at peace and at the pinnacle of our greatness. She sat next to this. She merited to see that. Right? That's who she became. And Orpah, what became of her? What became of her? Now you have to understand, when two sisters are mentioned, it means that they were equal in greatness. The equal potential. One of them became part of the Jewish people and the forerunner of the Mashiach. What happened to Orpah? You know that the names tell you very beautifully. You know what the name Orpah means? In Hebrew, if you know Hebrew, Orpah means the back of the neck. She turned her back on her mother-in-law and the Jewish people and she went back to her people. Ruth, the name Ruth in Hebrew, Resh Vav Taf in Hebrew, among other things, it means, if you add it up, it adds up to 606. 606. Why? Because she had already the seven mitzvahs of the non-Jews. She took on the other 606 mitzvahs, which is what she was, and that's what her name indicates, right? You don't, you don't get credit for having the seven mitzvahs that you have already. You get the credit. Your name, your essence is the part she took on. She took on the 606 mitzvahs that made up the 613, that's who she was. There's other meanings in the name as well, but that's one of them. Ruth, if you think about it, you, you realize it's three of the four letters of the word Torah. Three of the four letters of the word Torah. The hey she had already. She took on Torah. It means many other beautiful things. That's, the, that's what happened to them. So, let's, uh, let's understand carefully. These two women of equal greatness, Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David, one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. What happened to Orpah? It's very hard for me to find the words. I'll just say this. The Medrash says that she went back to Moab and that night, that night, she fell to oh, an almost indescribable level. It says she got involved with a hundred men and one dog. <laughs> now you have to understand this. Not, not, not only did she fail, and fail as a woman, but she failed in immorality. Do you know what Ruth's greatness was? You have to see the diametric opposites here. Do you know what Ruth's greatness was? Ruth came from a nation of immorality and immodesty, and she merited to become the, grand, the great-grandmother of King David because of her modesty. 
Not just that she rejected the values of her people, but she rejected exactly the specific heart of what her people's values were. You know, the, the Gemara says, again, it's a long story, and, but the Gemara says that when she came, to the, came uh, to the Jewish people, absolutely destitute, in fact, the, if you look in the Megillah, it says that they were walking on the road to Beit Lechem. It says, Derech Beit Lechem. They were walking on the road. Rashi, with his super conscious ears, picks it up and says, what do you mean they were walking on the road? Of course they were walking on the road. Where else? Where else? You come from Moab to Beit Lechem, you walk on the road. So what does it mean? Rashi says it means they were so poor they didn't have shoes. When it says walking on the road, it means on the road. That's what it means. She exchanged the riches of being a princess in Moab for being a total destitute, devastated person with almost no hope of ever remarrying. <laughs> in the Jewish people, the, the expression used in the Chazal is better to be the, to be the head among foxes than a tail, to be a tail among lions than a head among foxes. <coughs> Why did she merit this greatness? Because she came from immorality and became moral. <coughs> Again, it's, you know, it says that, for example, when she finally got married, it was to Boaz, who was the leading sage of the generation. How did he notice this, this girl, <coughs> this convert to Judaism? How did he notice her? He noticed her because of her morality. Many in those days noticed women, you have to understand this, many in those days noticed women because they were modest. They didn't notice women who were immodest. Women who were immodest caused their eyes to move away. Women who were modest is what caused the Jewish man. Why? Because she came to glean pickings in his field. Right? She was so poor, the only way she could survive, she and her mother-in-law, was she walked after the reapers. You know, there's a law in the Torah that when, the, when Jews reap a field, you have to leave all the ears of corn that drop. You may not go back for them. You have to leave for them for the poor. So, so Ruth was, was, was reduced to a level where the only way she could survive was going among the poor people and picking up the, this royalty. This girl had been a princess. The only way she could survive was she went to pick up the ears of corn. Boaz noticed in his field that when the poor people went through the field, this woman bent down to pick up the corn more modestly. She kneeled in a way. That was, you may be sure that all the Jewish girls of that generation, they were extremely modest. You may be sure. Not like today. <laughs> you may be sure that when they, whatever they did in the fields, they didn't expose any of themselves. But Ruth was more modest. By the way, I don't know what you're laughing for. Because Jewish women in this generation are immeasurably above Jewish men. (laughs) (laughs) Women in general in this generation are doing much better than the men. And it's written in all our sources that the redemption will come from women. I noticed all the giggling here was from the men. (laughs) All the sources say that when the men have lost it beyond, beyond hope, the women will still pull through. And it's the women who saved us in Egypt, and they saved us at Hanukkah, it was Yehudis, and at Purim, it was Esther. So we're all at an abysmal level. But they're at the top of the abyss. And we're at the bottom of that. <coughs> he noticed the girl behaving more modestly, so he said, who is she? And when they told him that she was Ruth, who had converted to Judaism, and she came from work, and eventually married her, and who came out of them was David. There's a beautiful example. Naomi said to her, you should read the Megillah, you should pay close attention to the words. When Naomi heard that he was interested in her, <coughs> and that in fact he may be the redeemer, and the one to marry her, Naomi said to her, go down to him tonight. He'll know, he knows that he's the one who's supposed to marry you, he's a relative of the family, you go hint to him that he's the one to marry you. She told her exactly how to do it, but read the words carefully. Naomi said to the following thing, my daughter... Dress beautifully. Put on your Shabbos clothes. Put on your Shabbos clothes. You're going to meet your, your chassan. This is the man, if he marries you as, as, he, as, he, as he should, according to Torah law, but he was the leading sage of the generation. You put on Shabbos clothes. Put on your special clothes and go down to the threshing floor where he's sleeping with his crop. And you lay down at his feet and you hint to him that he's the man to marry you. If you read the verse very carefully, it says that when Ruth obeyed her mother-in-law, and she went down to the threshing floor where we were sleeping. Read the words exquisitely carefully and you'll see that the order's reversed. When Naomi gives her the command, she says to address in your special clothing and go down to where he is. When the verse repeats what Ruth did, it says she went down and then she dressed. Again, her mother-in-law said the natural thing. Get changed. Go down at night to where he's sleeping. That's not what she did. She walked at night in her normal clothing. She didn't want to be seen out at night dressed specially. She took her clothes with her. She found a private place there, and that's when she changed. 
And the, the, the Megillah emphasizes it by reversing the order. <coughs> so you have a woman who came from a nation of complete immorality, and she rose to a level of such morality and such modesty. What happened to Orpah? She sank to complete immorality. She didn't just sink and become a failure. She sank into the same zone that Ruth had rejected. There was a complete polarized opposite. In fact, we don't have time to go into it. You, you owe it to yourselves. You can't call yourself a Jew. Unless you've been through at least some of the primary sources yourself. Do you know what happened a generation later? What happened yet? Be aware of these things. What happened a generation later? Two, three generations later. Who came out of Ruth? David. David. Who came out of Orpah three generations later? Goliath. Goliath. Yes. And they met each other on the battlefield. Of course, they were giants of the spirit, and the results were giants. David was a giant of the neshama, that's why he was a, little, he was a lad. He couldn't even carry Saul's armor. When the Jewish people were facing this tank of a man, Goliath was, a, was, an, was an invincible giant. The Jewish army of that generation, including Saul, who was greater than any king Saul, merited to be king of the Jewish people, they couldn't face him. And every day he came out and taunted the Jewish people, can't you send a man to fight me? And the whole Jewish army, totally fearless individuals, they couldn't cope, nobody could. So David arrived at the battlefront, he came to bring food to his brothers, and he said, what's the problem, I'll fight him. <laughs> so they said to him, well, uh, his older brother, the, his, the Chazal said that his older brother was disqualified from becoming the king of Israel, because once in his life he said an angry word, and this was the moment. He said to him, you're a boy, how can you fight him? And he faces this, this, uh, the giant of the descriptions of how big he was and what he was. And if you remember, if you remember carefully the verse... Here stands David, the son of Ruth, woman of such indescribable modesty, and he's facing this giant of a negative force who comes out of the polarized opposite of what, what, what his mother and grandmother had sunk to. You remember the words? It's hard to say too much, but what are the words that Goliath uses when he sees David coming out to meet him? Am I a dog that you send a boy against me with a stone and a slingshot? You know what those words are referring to? <sighs> anyway. Now, the question we have to ask is this. <coughs> How did Orpah do that? How did she sink to that? She had the potential to be a root. <coughs> we know she had the potential because we see her grandson was an, was, was, was an, was an enemy. Yet, again, adversaries in Torah are always on the same level. Right? There's no, there's no, there's no <coughs> standoff in Torah between somebody of greatness and somebody who's a nobody. This man was incredibly powerful. Why? Because he was the output, the outcome of that woman who had that incredible power. So she had this power that was equal to Ruth. So how did she sink to that? If she was capable of that, how did she sink to that? You know what the reason was? Because when she turned her back on Naomi and she walked back to her people, on the journey back, that fateful afternoon, she said to herself, what have I done? And she suddenly realized that her moment of greatness had been missed. That Hashem had given her in life an opportunity to become what Ruth would become. And she'd lost it. And there's certain moments in life that can never come again. There's certain moments of opportunity against another discussion. Certain moments of opportunity that could not come again. What should she have done? She should have sought the moment again. She should have turned and run after Naomi when she walked back to her people and she suddenly realized that I failed. This is my opportunity to go for greatness and instead I'm choosing the immorality of these people and to be wealthy and to be comfortable and my sister's shown that it's possible to achieve, to opt for spirituality. She should have turned and run like the wind after Naomi. But you know what happened to her? She had a sense of failure. She had just a momentary sense of the fact that I failed. And one of the dangers of an experience of failure is that it makes you fail more. Again, you have to understand this. The person's walking on a, along a cliff edge, and it's very dangerous, and the ground is treacherous, and your foot stumbles, and there's an enormous abyss opened up next to you, and one false move, that's it. So when your foot stumbles and slips, there are two possible responses. The one response is to fight like a tiger, and get back up and continue walking. And the other is to say, well, I've fallen anyway, and to regard it as an irreversible fall, and to allow the minor fall to be the justification for the major fall. That's a mistake that you can make. 
She had a minor fall. The fall was, she didn't choose the same as Ruth. She was on her way back. She'd lost it. She, had, she did not display the courage. She did not display what it took. But she could have turned around. But what happened was the emotion of having lost, the emotion of having failed, When a cat falls, no matter what its position, it turns itself over and it puts its feet down. That's the way you have to fall. Now you're going to take a small failure. That's what often happens. People sometimes, look at life. Look at life around you. You'll see that sometimes people go through circumstances that are not that bad. They're not that bad. There's still plenty to live for. Enormous amount to live for. People don't see it that way. Why? Because they tend to focus on where the failure has taken place. And all the rest that is still going on. Torah sources say that as long as you're alive, the balance is incredibly inside on the side of positivity. You know what life means? Let alone the fact that you, <laughs> whatever you have going for you. But you focus on the fact that you failed in this area, you failed in that area, this thing didn't work out, that thing didn't work out, this particular option that you wanted didn't work out. You go to pieces, nothing else is... And then you use that emotion of having begun a fall to dash you into total destruction. That's what happened. She lost it. So in summary, in summary, when there's a moment of crisis, whether it's a crisis of emotions, crisis of emotional stability, when there's a crisis of identity, exactly who am I and where am I going, and is this road correct, and why has it been altered, and particularly when there's not only a crisis, but there's the beginning of a sense of failure, not only is it a crisis, but I've already responded in the wrong direction. I've already responded incorrectly. There's been a fall here, and I've sunk below my level, and I've done something I shouldn't have done. But that's not a reason to give up. That's not a reason. The way the lower self works, you have to understand this, the way the lower self works is it does not fight clean. It doesn't fight clean. It hits you when you're down. That's when you're an easy target. That's where it goes for you. It doesn't, your head sort of doesn't come to you when you're feeling fit and fighting and, and fresh. It doesn't come to you then. It comes to you when you're depressed. That's when it hits you. It knows that you're invulnerable when you're feeling good. It doesn't bother with you then. It waits until you make a tiny slip. And you get feeling a slightly negative. And you're going through a difficult phase and you're exhausted or you're deep. It's a fight to the death. You have to understand, life's not a game. Life is possible to be life and therefore you have to overcome the possibility of death. The battle that goes on within you is a fight between life and death. It's not a game. It's not fair. And no place in the book does it say that this battle has to be fair. The, the lowest self is not fighting fair. It's looking to fight unfair. That's why he is what he is. Let's speak for just a few minutes about the correct response to these situations. <laughs> What's the correct response? I want to share with you one example. I'd like to share with you one example of a person who fell and put his feet down like a cat and fell correctly. I want to describe to you somebody, not who fell a little bit and allowed it to make him fall a lot. I want to describe to you somebody who fell a lot and had only a little bit left, but he saved a little bit. Never mind somebody who sort of tripped and stumbled and he caught himself and he climbed back up. I'll share, you, share with you a story of somebody who lost everything. <coughs> in the most extreme terms. And all that was left was one tiny little almost nothing. But he maintained that. And he climbed all the way back up. Numerous <coughs> says like this. Again, also long, many details, but I'll just compress it for you. Try to illustrate the point. This is totally beyond human understanding. Again, do not even think of beginning to... Ask any questions about this. You know, study the sources yourself. The depth of this is beyond human understanding. There's many, many... <coughs> even the beginning of what this means is way beyond the scope of this discussion. But I'll illustrate at least what's possible. It was said that King Solomon, Shlomo Melech, himself, once went through a fall. He once fell. What happened was this. Again, the details are complex, but when he was ruling the world, ruling the Jewish people, which meant, in fact, ruling the world, at that time the Jewish people ruled the world, kings and queens of all the nations came to pay homage to the Jewish people, it was 40 years of total universal peace on earth, run according to Torah, <coughs> in the sources it says that it was the highest point that the world ever reached in its history, it was the only approximation to a perfect world, a universally perfect world that ever was, Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, whose name means completeness and peace, Shlomo in Hebrew means the word Solomon, the word Shlomo, you have to understand who he was. He was the perfection of David. What came out of David, who is the precursor to the Mashiach, was King Solomon, who was the embodiment of what the Mashiach should be. 
The word shalom in Hebrew means absolute peace. It means total perfection, shalom. <coughs> if you rearrange the letters of Shlomo, it spells Hamashal. Moshel means the complete ruler. Hamashal means the one who is the analogy of perfection. That's why he wrote Mishlei. <coughs> anyway. But he once fell. Now the Gemara says like this. Follow me through carefully. During the time of his reign, he had an opportunity to conquer the forces of darkness. This is all very, very deep from the deepest levels of the... But he had an opportunity to conquer the forces of darkness. And there's a deep Kabbalistic idea that people of greatness who had the opportunity to do that, they decided to do battle with those forces. And he decided to conquer them. Now, there's a certain avenue of access into the world of darkness that's known as the Shadim. What the Shadim are is a very difficult thing to talk about. You can look it up yourself. The Rabbi Chal talks about it a bit. Shadim are creatures who are halfway between the human and the spiritual, but on the dark side. Gemara says that they have certain human functions. Other human functions they don't have. <coughs> They're not specifically visible, but you can see traces of their existence, which I strongly re- recommend you don't try to do. They are incredibly negative and evil. They, they're immensely powerful in their... Today we're below the level of the shadings. No, not much to worry about now. Today, today we don't need much external attack. But there are such creatures. These beings... <coughs> The word shed, what does shed mean in Hebrew? Shed in Hebrew means it means that which is derived from imagination. That's what it means. The Shad Hashemin was the, the, the man which tasted like whatever you imagined. It's related to the suckling of a baby, the same word. Because, because the Kabbalistic, the Gemara says that a, a child suckles from its mother, tastes whatever the milk tastes. It has many tastes. The Shadim are creatures of the imagination. It's impossible now to go into how they were generated in the world. The particular sin of Adam that led to their creation is not the place to go into, unfortunately. But they born from a tremendous power of immorality. And they are born from a certain type of immorality and fantasy. That's how they're born. That's how they arrive in the world. Creatures of the imagination does not mean they're imaginary. They're produced by the imagination. <laughs> I was once present when one of the great men of Yerushalayim was trying to explain this, and one of the students around the table was saying, having a lot of trouble grasping it, so he said, what do you mean they, they of imagination, but they're not imaginary? I mean, can you photograph them? So he said to him, look in the mirror. So they're visible. They're visible. And they look like you. Now, the king of the Shadim, the Gemara says, was a creature called Ashmadai. Again, not important the details for now. But he's the king of this world. Of, again, all this has a level, this is childlike words. You have to understand what's going on here. King Solomon had a chance to capture him. Capturing him meant keeping all these forces under control. So he sent certain agents to put a chain around his neck. The Gemara says, a chain with Hashem's name on. <coughs> they managed it. They brought him back in chains. Fantastic stories that the Gemara says that occurred on the journey. Again, you have to look it up yourself. Finally, he was brought into the palace and King Solomon Shlomo Melech maintained him under his control. And during that time, the world was perfect. The world was perfect. Of course, he was the king of goodness and therefore he captured and controlled <coughs> the king of... <coughs> one day, one day, Shlomo Melech called him in and he said to him, tell me how you operate. Now, King Shlomo, Shlomo Melech, was the king of wisdom. So he said to him, tell me how you and your beings operate. So Ashmedai said, sure, take this off and I'll show you. So Moses Shlomo took off the chain and instantaneously he swallowed him. According to one opinion, he swallowed him. According to another, he threw him 400 passes. 400 passes means, those are the dimensions of Eretz Israel. Threw him outside the land of Israel. What it means in deeper terms, he threw him out of the world of Kedusha, of sanctity. And he sat on the throne and began ruling. Now, of course, he looked exactly like Shlomo. He looked exactly like him. Except for his feet, which is another story. But nobody ever saw his feet. (laughs) It's another story. That's for after midnight. The point is that he sat on the throne. He sat on the throne. And he ruled the the world. Now, it means 
that the world now passed into the domain of the absolute opposite of where it was before. And nobody could tell the difference. Because these are creatures who are the creatures of your own image. <coughs> what happened to him, what, what happened to Shlomo? King Solomon himself wandered the roads as a poor beggar who people thought was insane. They thought he was a look-alike, insane, yes, individual. Imagine, imagine wandering the roads of Israel, telling people that I, yes, I'm really King Solomon. The man on the throne is really the force of darkness. Can you imagine what people's response was? The children must have run after him in the street, mocking and laughing. Can you imagine? Talk about a fall. Talk about an identity crisis. This has to be the source of all forms of identity crisis. Someone sitting on the throne who looks like you, it's due to your failure, you lost it, you made a mistake, he's now running the world, everyone thinks he's you, he's controlling the world with total, absolute evil intent. Of course, this story is about your own inner world, you have to understand this. It's not a story about the Jewish people, it's a story about your own inner world. Who's running you? Is it you or him? Or her? Understand what's going on here? It's not a story. This is your head. But I leave you to think that through yourself. And that was the situation. Eventually, the Gemara says it was rectified, at least according to one opinion. I'm not going to, just very briefly, it's not our direct discussion. How was it rectified? Because the Sanhedrin, the great court of the sages of the Jewish people, began to feel that there was something amiss with this king. They began to sense that all was not well with the king. And when they wanted to know and be sure, when you really want to know deeply about a man, whom do you ask? So they called his wives in. Shlomo had a thousand wives. They called the wives in. They called in his wives to find out if he was who he was supposed to be. And the women said that he was doing things that they knew that were indescribable. Again, I'm, this is not the place to go into it. What they described that he was doing, that they knew, personally, indicated that he was drawing his energy from the side of darkness and not from the side of... It's very beautiful to understand exactly what he was doing. And I'll just say one word for now that, that in this kind of company, perhaps one can say, is that the women said that one of the things that he was doing was among... when he would invite one of his wives to come to him, one of the women that he was calling was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was his mother. Bathsheba was his mother. When the sages heard that, they knew exactly what was going on. But that's not our story for now. What our story for now is to focus on is what happened to King Saul. What happened to Shlomo himself? So here was a man. Now, we're not talking about a slight fall. We're not talking about a slight stumbling on the edge of a brink. We're talking about somebody who lost it entirely and he fell and he reached the abyss and there was no hope of recovery because nobody would believe him. <coughs> so the, the Gemara says the more almost, almost incredible thing. And if this doesn't give you personally the hope and the mechanism and the, the, the Jewish tenacity to be able to fight out of anything, then nothing will. The Gemara says the almost incredible statement that when he fell into this pit of despair and hopelessness, he only had, according to two opinions, he only had one thing left. He was cast out as he was, as you say in English, with a shirt on his back. The only thing he had was matloi or gundoi. Matlo means his staff. He held a staff in his hand, or the cloak that he was wearing at the time. Whichever it was, let's say it was the staff that he had. Then one says like this, again, <laughs> almost begs. He was thrown into the abyss of darkness, and he had nothing with him. The only thing that he had was his staff. So it says, malach al-matloi. You know what that means? He remained a king over his staff. How did he climb back to his greatness? Because when he fell, he looked around him and he said, What do I have left? What do I have left? <laughs> what did he have left? Nothing. No family, no royalty, not, not even any human being who would even relate to him as psychiatrically normal. Talk about identity, no identity, nothing. So he looked at himself and he said, Well, I still have this. I still have this. That's like an individual who's lost absolutely everything and he's left with one matchstick. So he looks around and he says, No, it's not all lost here, I have this. But that's what he did. And it says he retained his royal dignity and rule over the pathetic almost nothing that 
But that did it. That kept his feet in the right place and his head in the right place and he landed on his feet and he walked all the way back up. What the Chazal are telling you here is that if you go through a fall and you think you've lost a lot, you even think you've lost everything. Have you lost more than that? We're talking about not just losing everything that you ruled and owned, we're talking about losing yourself. In your own inner being you've lost yourself. And you've given it over to the worst thing that can be. Is there any, could, you, could you imagine a description of a fall and a disaster and a devastation greater than that? <coughs> it's impossible to think of anything greater than that. You're not just letting yourself down, letting down the Jewish people, the world, Hashem, all through a mistake. And you climb out of that by saying, all is not lost. I have almost nothing left, but I still have that. And you retain your dignity, and your sense of self, and your sense of morality, and your sense of clarity. And you climb back up out of that. That's Jewish greatness. And that's what's required. When you go through that thing where things are unstable, where you're not sure exactly what the territory looks like, you're not sure exactly what you look like, and you've lost something. In most cases, if you examine it carefully, you'll see that you haven't lost much at all. It may look disastrous now, but focus on the broader picture. Step back. What would you tell somebody else going through your situation? Very often, if you look at it like that, you'll see, it's not so bad. Not so bad. It isn't exactly this thing, but it's plenty of others. And even if you've lost a lot, and even if you say, well, that's, that's him and that's her, but me, I've lost almost everything. Well, well let's, let's think about it carefully. You're still alive? Still alive? That's a great deal. Got two legs, two hands, two kidneys. It's a lot to start with. And therefore, the first step is identifying this pathway. Knowing that a fall or an error can be disastrous. There can be a destabilization emotionally that can cause a disastrous fall. The sense of failure itself, having begun to fall, can precipitate a total fall. You have to know that. And it's not that there's a Jewish response to it. Jewish response. There's no response of feeling the failure. There's a, there's a response of objectifying the failure, knowing exactly what it is, looking at what's been lost, what remains, retaining a royal dignity that a Jew should have over whatever remains, no matter how little, and using that to climb back up step by step. The fall might have been precipitated in one step. And you climb back slowly, step by step, makes no difference, as long as it's one step after another. And you can climb back, just like you can fall from the heights into an abyss. It's possible and required for you to learn how to walk from an abyss back up to the heights.